once I realized like, hey, whatever I do, I'm going to try to strive to be at the top. And that's going to come with it a ton of work and risk. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do that anyway, regardless of what path I choose, why don't I choose a path that I'm going to enjoy the most as I get there? And so then once I realized any every path is going to have the same amount of risk, it was easier for me to say, well, right, let me do academia. Welcome to the Early Career Moves podcast, the show that highlights remarkable BIPOC young professionals killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel-Bolcha, Latinx career coach, corporate consultant, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we either dive into a special guest story or I'll share my own career gems. If you're a BIPOC professional feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to episode 57 of the podcast. Today, we have a very special guest and a unique episode. We have Sekou Burmese, PhD, aka Professor Burmese, on the show. Sekou was my people analytics professor in business school when I was at UT Austin, and he's now at University of North Carolina, Keenan Flagler, and he's an associate professor of strategy and entrepreneurship. I invited him on the show because not only is he a really down-to-earth and approachable professor, but he's also got a really special early career story and reflection about how and why he decided to pursue a PhD in business. And so we talk about that fork in the road early in his career when he was 23. He was comparing either becoming a long-term you know, business consulting person versus becoming an academic. And so we dive into how he made that decision. And you know, this conversation was a great reminder that if you're someone who is ambitious and you're a achievement oriented, no matter what you do will require a climb and it's going to require hard work and a degree of risk. And so you might as well choose something that's fun and interesting for you. All right, y'all enjoy the episode. Hey, before we head into today's episode, I want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at ECM podcast. Also head over to ecmpodcast.com where you can get freebies, read the latest ECM blog post, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. And if you or someone you know is looking for one-on-one career coaching, you can sign up to work with me on my website. Lastly, if you're a big fan and supporter of the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we can reach other people. Okay, let's head into the show. So I'm excited to have a real expert on the show because this is the first person who actually knows a lot about talent and human capital topics and everything. So I'm excited to have you on the show and share your story. But yeah, tell us a little bit about where are you right now? What are you up to? Uh, So right now, um, hello, everyone, all of Priscilla's wonderful listeners. So I'm at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, right now, I'm currently a faculty member at the Keenan Flagler Business School, the University of North Carolina. Been here for as an employee for about a year and a half, but only physically here for about seven months because, you know, pandemic. But uh, yeah, that's where I am now and living my best life, as the kids say. 
Very cool. Yeah. It's kind of weird to call you Seku, but Professor Burmese <laughs> was my professor um, at UT Austin in the business school. And sadly, oh. UT lost him, which was a huge loss. And so, you know, the topic of the podcast is early career moves. I know that, you know, you're not no longer in that stage. But part of what why I wanted you on the show was to share how you got to where you are today, particularly deciding to take the plunge of academia. Because I don't think that's a small decision that you made. And it's like a decision that shouldn't be taken lightly. And so I just wanted to dive into your story of like, did you always think you'd become a PhD? How did you make that decision? But before we go there, tell us just a little bit about like your background, where you're from and that kind of thing. Sure. I am born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I am Let's see, uh, the second of four children. So I have uh, two brothers and a sister. So nice crowded house, a lot of competition amongst the siblings. So my uh, father is Puerto Rican and my mother is African-American. So, you know, Black, Latino kind of upbringing and all that messiness that comes with that. And uh, I think that's it. What other pieces am I missing? Yeah, I didn't know you were half Puerto Rican. That's cool. Yes. Yeah. The, you wouldn't <laughs> tell by the name, even though it is my dad's name, but his name is, as far as we can tell, it has French origins. And so we believe one of his great grandfathers immigrated from Haiti to Puerto Rico. And Got so Vermi became Bermi with a B. Uh, mm-hmm. And now Burmese, they add an extra S when we immigrated on Ellis Island. And so if there is a B-E-R-M-I-S, Burmese, they are a thousand percent related to me because the name has a very unique etymology. But yes, so that's that's it. Most people are like, so where are you from? West Africa? I was like, Brooklyn, half Boricua, you know, it's it's uh, off putting. But uh, but yeah. Very cool. Okay. So tell us how you landed at RPI, which is an amazing engineering school. Was that always in the plan to be an engineer? Yeah. It's weird when you look back on your life, like some of the things that you don't notice. If you told me this when I was 21, I'd say like, well, you know, I was interested in engineering and they recruited me. I played basketball. They recruited me to play basketball. So it was like, oh, I can do both at this place. Yeah. But my older brother went to RPI. So when they reached out to me, there was a familiarity with the school. When I went to visit that, I probably didn't even recognize the fact that I was like, oh, this is kind of remote and it's in the middle of nowhere for, you know, what New Yorkers think is the middle of nowhere. But man, I like it here. I, I, it feels comfortable. And, you know, having a brother that did it kind of helped. But so I told you I went to Brooklyn Tech and I majored in chemistry and I, I knew I wanted to be a chemical engineer probably when I was 14, 15. And so in that way, I was kind of the perfect person for RPI. They were like, oh, you actually want to be an engineer? You know this? You've taken advanced AP chem and all that, and you love that stuff? So at the time, I did want to be uh, a chemical engineer from, I'd say, you know, from 14, 15 until probably 20. And then I fell out of love with chemical engineering. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So that was during college. That was during college. Yes. So I finished, I got my degree in chemi, but uh, it was, and it wasn't the classes. It was uh, the working experiences I had. I interned at Exxon and Exxon was good to me. It was just the work was kind of mundane. And again, this is my, you know, 19, 20 year old brain. That's like, I like action. I like talking to people. I like new challenges. And it was very much a stayed, you know, pay your dues, get promoted, Mm -hmm. find an expertise, stay in that expertise for 25, 30 years. Then, you know, that's it. And that did not appeal to me. And so at that point, I started thinking, 
maybe I should find something else that's a little more, that leans a little more into my inquisitiveness, my social skills, all those kind of things. Yeah. So actually on the podcast, I had Maria Paula Munoz from my class. I don't know if you had her as a student, but Mm. she has that story. Like she was a chemical engineer, worked in oil and gas, realized Mm. it was absolutely not what she had in mind (laughs) and then totally pivoted out and never looked back. Right. And so it's cool that you got to realize that before you graduated. Um, But maybe it made that last year a little stressful, like figuring out what you were going to do. How did Mm -hmm. you figure that out? I pretty much just went on two markets. So I went on the chemi market because I was like, well, look, um, if this business, because the thing that I pivoted to was just business, you know, quote air quotes. And so that ended up being sales jobs, which I realized quickly that no, I need something a little less sociable than that. And then (laughs) consulting. So management consulting, Mm -hmm. which was kind of like problem solving and you know, interacting with it. And I was like, oh, this seems really interesting and kind of feeding that inquisitiveness, that curiosity I had. So I had a resume and I did the job market for consulting and I had a resume and job market for engineering. And I kind of did both at the mm-hmm. same time, which probably wasn't the greatest idea, but I, I was, I'm super risk averse. So I was like, I, you know, I might get into a job offer with whatever company and they see I'm a fraud and then I'm screwed. <laughs> so I need to have an engineering job I can fall back on. So you landed where I now work um, at mm-hmm. Deloitte, mm-hmm. and I think we had the same job, you know, working on human capital issues, working with clients. Did that satisfy some of what you were looking for, like more of that action mode type inquisitive thing? Absolutely. So I, I loved the interaction. I learned a ton. Now I had taken maybe two business classes my entire time at RPI. So I walked in there and my first year I was a systems analyst. And so I was doing like tech integration projects mm. for PeopleSoft. And they were talking all these accounting terms like, oh, if you're in clothes and this and accruals. And I was like, I have no idea what any of this <laughs> is. I've never taken an accounting class. And so my roommate, at the time was management. He, he was a management grad. He also ended up working at Deloitte. And I was like, can you lend me your accounting books? And so mm-hmm. I would just like read his books and learn accounting enough that I could at least understand what they were talking about in these meetings. So in some ways it, it, it stretched me because I was like, never know what the day is going to bring. Um, got to work with some really interesting people, great companies, you you know, like the JP Morgan chases of the world and like see yeah. how they work and they operate. So I was I enjoyed it. I was like a sponge those first couple of years. And then once I got promoted, I started doing more of the stuff like the change leadership and those kind of things. But yeah. And so at that point in your life, you probably started to think long term. Did you ever consider I could become like a partner and this would be my life? You seem like someone who would plan a lot. So like, how did you think about that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. I, you asked some good questions. I, I almost feel like someone is feeding you information. Um, so I took a sheet of paper out and I made a kind of timeline. I remember doing this. So I was, this was 2001 and I was at a conference called the PhD Project, which is a conference that kind of introduces underrepresented minority candidates to business PhDs. And I didn't know a business PhD existed. Thankfully, I had a mentor that kind of pointed me in the right direction. So I was sitting there and I was like, all right, what is my life like as a consultant? And I went from my age then, which was 23 or something to like 50. And I said, all right, make partner <laughs> at this time, blah, 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 you know, and then I said, if, as an academic, what is my life like look like? Mm-hmm. And I kind of saw 
that at a certain point in time, I'd have much more flexibility, autonomy, you know, all these things. But the next six to eight years was going to be brutal in the academic side, right? Like getting a PhD was going to be hard. And then there was going to be another like trying to get tenure thing. And those were going to be brutal. But if I can make it through that, it opened up. Whereas consultant, I saw, I make it, I become partner. I have to kill myself become partner. And then I'm traveling 200 days a year, you know? And so I, I did kind of make a very calculated, I'm a Virgo, I'm like way, write things down, make mm-hmm. a decision. And then once I made that decision, I was like, no looking back, right? Consulting was good to me. I loved consulting. I like doing it now, you know, small engagements, but I thought my quality of life would be better making that move. So that was like my early career move or pivot that, wow. uh, that I think about a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge move. And it's interesting you say you're risk averse because I am also somewhat risk averse. And to me, the idea of getting a PhD seems a little risky because part of me is like that 10-year process seems so intense. I remember advocating for my professors in college and like writing letters and like (laughs) just like all of this work to get like our one Latina professor (laughs) tenure. Uh And I just, yeah, I just remember thinking like, man, it's almost seemed like a game of luck a little bit yeah, or just a lot of politics, right? Of what politics. has your experience been? It's been not unlike that. So I guess at the end of it and what writing it all down showed me was there were a lot of assumptions that I make in corporate, in my corporate life that I didn't think would be hard, devastating, would require luck. Like making partner at Deloitte was, is brutal, right? Like yeah. really hard, you know? And I saw people who were going up for partner and they were super stressed out. Like People mm-hmm. who are going for tenure super stressed. I was like, so once I realized, like, hey, whatever I do, I'm going to try to strive to be at the top. And that's yeah. going to come with it a ton of work and risk. And I was like, okay, if, well, if I'm going to do that anyway, regardless of what path I choose, why don't I choose a path that I'm going to enjoy the most as mm-hmm. I get there? And so then once I realized any, every path is going to have the same amount of risk, it was easier for me to say, well, right, let me do academia. Yeah. But if you think, well, I can just do what I'm doing here and it, I won't ever have to take a risk in my current path, then it can be hard. But usually that's not the case unless, you know, you've decided, hey, I'm just going to coast in middle management. I'm just going to, you know, ride this thing out. But if you are ambitious and you yeah. know that about yourself, then you realize like, oh, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to try. I'm going to fail. I'm going to have to regroup. I'm going to do it again. So why don't I pick an area that I enjoy the most while I do those things? That's amazing. Okay. So you ended up going to Northwestern, right? Is that correct? correct. For your, did you do the master's and then the PhD? Is that what you did? I did the PhD program, but you get a master's along the way gotcha. because I didn't have a master's. I qualified for one, but it wasn't like I was in a master's program per se. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So what was that experience like? Was it as one of those small programs? Was it really cutthroat? Like mm-hmm. what were the challenges of that journey? Yeah. Again, I chose well. God shined on me. It's like Northwestern at the time just had an incredible, not only incredible faculty, but PhD students that really kind of took care of me, some of whom are still my mentors today. And so I had a really easy transition and I'm sort of gregarious. I'm a New Yorker, right? I got, I'm all right, let me get in, let me figure out how this stuff works and then Mm -hmm. I'll be good. And so I had a lot of folks there. So the, the program was not cutthroat. It was designed for everyone that gets in to succeed, but you kind of had to make your own way. And so I I struggled initially just because I was ill-equipped for 
a PhD. I was not in, in, in social science, which is in essence what it was. I was yeah. equipped for an engineering degree. So stats and the data piece was great, but writing and reading and crafting arguments. And I had no idea how to do it. So I had to relearn how to write. And that was probably yeah. the biggest uh, challenge that almost got me. <laughs> but <laughs> I had, again, a, a couple of mentors that really worked with me to help me on that. And so, you know, those are like those things I think about all the time when I talk to students, because I know what that's like to be like, I just, I'm failing at something and I don't know how yeah. to improve. Right. But it, Northwestern was a place that was really gracious and supportive. And if it hadn't been, you know, maybe my story's a little different. Yeah. So how is the funding piece part of PhD? How did you think through preparing financially? Like, mm. I'm not going to have an income. I'm, my understanding is like they give you funding, right? You get a, you get a small stipend. stipend. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. what is, I mean, that's also like a thing to consider, right? Absolutely. Decided in 2001 that I wanted to get a PhD, but I did not apply till 2002 because I knew it would take me about 18 months to kind of get my affairs in order. So you get a stipend. I can't even remember what it was. It's like enough. In essence, you're always broke, but you're never poor, right? As I was saying, it's like I lived those six years. I was broke, but I wasn't poor. So I had insurance. I had enough money to eat, but like a flight, I'd be like, do I need to go home for Christmas? Maybe (laughs) not. You know, it was like that kind of living. But in short, I had to kind of, I spent that year kind of living bare bones and saving because mm. I realized like I had some school debt. I had purchased a car. I was like, I got to pay this car off. I'm not paying a car note. And so again, a planner. So I'm one of these people that said, okay, how much will it take for me to get to net zero? And I figured like, oh, it's going to take me at least 12 months. So I'm out. But that was kind of what I did. And so I, I always suggest this to folks that you have to be prepared to live off the stipend. Because uh, it's you can't work on the side and get the PhD done. It's all yeah. encompassing. Okay, cool. And so how long was your PhD journey? And what was your first job after getting your PhD? Yeah, so it was six years from 2003 to 2009. Uh, and my first job was at University of Texas in McCollum oh. School of Business. Yeah, that was my first job out of uh, my PhD. And 2009 was kind of a rough year, right? Because oh. Great Recession. <laughs> So needless to say, so again, New Yorker, like Texas was not a place I was thinking about living ever, right? I was like, Texas, no. I'm a Northeastern, I was like, I'm going to get a job in the Northeast where all my friends and all of my family live and I'll be fine. And then recession hit and jobs became really scarce. So this was the time where like people would post jobs and then they would unpost the job, even if they were doing interviews. And so Texas was one of the places that was fine. <laughs> I don't know if you remember 09, but Texas was, oh, you guys are running out of money. We're actually all right. you know. And so they continued to hire. So I was very thankful to get the Texas job because there were a lot of people I know who kind of had to take whatever job they could get, maybe not ideal. And Texas was on my list. Texas was one of the top five places I wanted, I, top five departments to be in. Geographically, yeah. I hadn't thought about it, but it was not hard to say yes <laughs> once yeah. I got the offer. But yeah, 2009 scared the crap out of me. Also, I was <laughs> newly engaged and my wife took her job, my fiance, now wife, took her job at Pepsi and she had to take her job, you know, in October, right? Whenever the MBA job market kind of clears. Yeah. And I didn't know I had a job until like March. And so at certain point I was like, I might just have to like move in with my fiance and be like, I'm still <laughs> looking for a job. And like, this is going to be embarrassing. And 
how are we going to have a wedding? So I was very stressed at the end, but uh, wow, that's so interesting. So I, you know, I obviously got my MBA 2020. Mm -hmm. I was also engaged and COVID hit and like, my job Mm. got delayed seven months. So that story kind of resonates just like a year of uncertainty. (laughs) It it, it reminds you about the important things. That's how I like to put it. It it makes you reassess what's important. Totally. Yeah. Cool. So, okay. So you were at UT for, I guess, like 11 years, 11 years. Yeah. What's it like to be a professor? Is it the most amazing thing ever where you can like (laughs) relax and think about things? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I just sit back in my cardigans with the leather patches on the elbow and just uh, smoke a pipe and think big thoughts. <laughs> you, you, so tenure, the tenure track is about getting papers published. And so every waking moment I wasn't teaching, I was thinking about a paper, collecting data or writing a paper. And yeah. so it's really one of those, you can never turn it off. So I, I don't know how many people say, how many hours do you work? I hope you don't ask me that question because I have no idea because I'll be doing something and be thinking about a paper or get a spare moment. My son's at um, baseball and I'll just, uh, you know, pull a paper out and like review it. So I'm always kind of working on stuff. And that's kind of what you do, particularly when you're junior, you're like, I mean, you're, you're pretty much running for your livelihood. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't do it enough, you have to leave and you have to upend your entire life, move your family. If you have, you know, that whole deal and it's, and it can be tough. So there's like a low grade pressure that just sits on your back and it never goes away. And it lasts like six, seven years. So other than that, <laughs> it's great. It's really awesome. And so that kind of gets me to like, what personality types would thrive in this career? Because it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of your work as a professor, those papers, take a long time. Like it's not like something you can just quickly put together. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. it even takes years. Mm-hmm. And then you have to like, when do you get that feedback in terms of like, this is great yeah. or yeah. actually we hate this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and people will say, I hate this paper. That will literally be something you get in a review. Academic okay. re- journal reviews are brutal. It definitely requires, and this is, these are things that mentors help you with, which is dealing with the rejection. It's one of these professions that you don't get a ton of feedback and most of the feedback you get is negative. (laughs) So you kind of have to be pretty self-confident in yourself and you kind of have to have faith in the process, right? That people tell you like, no, you're going to get papers rejected, but eventually get in it. I can't, you know, my younger brother's a musician and, you know, I I equivocated to, you know, tryouts or, you know, trying to get, you know, put on, you, you have to go to all these auditions and 90% of them are like, yeah, next. And you just have to, you can't be like, oh, I stink. You have to say like, well, got to go to the next one. And so yeah. that sort of perseverance, you called it resilience or that. I think it's a, a bit of a perseverance piece. Mm-hmm. You also got to be a little insane, like just maybe like 30% insane <laughs> because you have to really care about things that are sometimes just really inane like this small things that no one cares about. And you have to, you know, cause I've spent two, three weeks of my life trying to answer a tiny little question about what happened 40 years ago in this one company. Right. Wow. And it's like, because the reviewers wanted me to solve this and that's the only way I can get this paper published. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to archives. I'm going to, inter- <laughs> you know, and then you finally get it. And you kind of, kind of have to have that. Now the benefit is if you do this thing the right way, 
these are papers that I care about. These are ideas that I care about. And so doing this stuff is insane. But at the end of the day, it's stuff that I've chosen. It's stuff that I like. I would never do this for somebody else's project, right? Like this is why I knew I couldn't be a consultant. It was like, I just don't care enough about the clients, whatever, (laughs) to spend the time that it takes to do it well. But I care a lot about things that I want to care about. And so that's, I, I think having a passion, having the perseverance and being a little insane are probably the the recipe, I would say. I think it sounds, and I didn't expect this, but it sounds a little bit like an entrepreneur path because it's yeah. like you decide, you know, what it is that you want to put out in the world. Mm-hmm. I know it's not a product, but it kind of is. You know, you're adding thought, but it's like on your terms and you're always kind of, you can always be working, it sounds like. Exactly. I mean, you are a, I've heard people call it like a, a knowledge entrepreneur or a, you know, you're an entrepreneur in the market of ideas, you know, which is kind of true. And in essence, you're trying to say something that no one has said so that you can add to the conversation. But yeah, you have to find conversations that you think matter. That's like finding markets. Then you got to say, do I have enough knowledge of what's going on to contribute to this? Can I create an MVP? And can I put it out there? And you do trial balloons, you write little short papers, you present them. And then when you have something, then you launch it, right? You submit the paper. And if it gets accepted, that's a success, right? Because, you know, tenure in most places, you have to get five to six papers published in our top journals. And that's tenure. And tenure is tenure is going public, right? Tenure is lifetime employment, right? Yeah. And so you're trying to go public. So I, I think it's actually really a really good analogy. Did you choose one area early on and then all your papers are sort of in the same family? Or are you able to then deviate a, a little bit? Or what is that like? Yeah, you're kind of constrained because of time, right? So yeah. unless you are like a seriously brilliant genius and you can kind of devour huge amounts of information and then write cogently about it quickly, it normally takes you a while to get enough knowledge about an area so that you can write about it intelligently. And so yeah. that redu- that increases switching costs. So switching areas is tough. So you end up having one or two areas And that, so for me, that was, so the human capital angle, I came to pretty quickly. And now that's far and away the area that I spend the most time thinking, teaching, writing about. But at the beginning, I was much more, I was interested in uh, social construction, like status and reputation and perceptions Mm -hmm. in markets. And I still care about that stuff, but I think I've been pulled into the human capital angle. Yeah, cool. So I think that's a nice segue to... I I brought up two topics, but feel free to, if you're like, oh, I have another topic, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the great resignation, obviously, because it's so timely. It's, it's nothing like I've ever seen. And I I don't think a lot of us have seen before. And then I also wanted to talk about like the impact on BIPOC folks, like all of the great resignation, but also this hybrid or like work from home, remote work impact. I talk about my friends or with my friends about this all the time is like, it's so nice to not be in person because you can just breathe and be yourself and not wear a mask all the time or have to code switch all the time. But at the same time, we worry about, is that going to hold us back career wise in terms of like being visible and networking and all of that stuff. So yeah, yeah, you can choose whatever you want from Um, 
Well, I'll start with the great resignation. And I think it's, well, first you got to know the great resignation and Aggie coined that term. So I, I try not to say it too much. Oh. Now I'm giving them them props. Um, the great shuffle. I've also heard. <laughs> yeah. The great <laughs> shuffle. I'll throw another one at you. The great renegotiation, right? Which Ooh. is if you, st- there, there are models about turnover and we've been studying turnover. We, the collective body for like a hundred years, but there's pushes and there's pulls, right? So there's things that push you out like dissatisfaction and uh, personal issues, right? And then things that pull you out like job market and or another offer. And then the last piece is how easy is it to switch? And those three really drive how much turnover you see. Yeah. And what I think you in essence have in the last two years is just a confluence of these three things kind of converging at the same time due to pandemic plus the market, et cetera, right? So, um, Job satisfaction had kind of been low uh, for a while, right? Where people were generally disgruntled with how either they much they were being paid, wages stagnated, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, to that point, they hadn't been met personal issues, right? Now, you're talking about my health. You're talking about my livelihood. I have people I know have passed away. I'm reevaluating the important things in life. And then also the job market is on fire. So now there's other offers and switching is super easy. I can switch Mm -hmm. and I don't go anywhere. I just stay married. So I think all of those are kind of coming together to create this, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's any one thing that said, how will it kind of end? And it's anybody's guess, but really we're trying to guess what is going to be the first thing to ebb. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my guess is at some point the personal issues and the things people are withholding working, eventually they're like, I got to get back to work. Right. Mm-hmm. It, I feel like employers and employees are at a stalemate. Employees or people searching for jobs are looking for better jobs, higher pay, better condition. And employers are like, we kind of would prefer to just keep the job the way it is and <laughs> just come back and do what you did before. <laughs> yeah. And there's like this back and forth. And so I think jobs are starting to offer a little more, begrudgingly offer a little more. And at a certain point, it'll hit a spot where people are like, all right, I'll go back. And so once that happens, once people start kind of going back and jobs start getting filled, then I think you'll see less of this turnover because now it's not like, hey, I can go get a job anywhere. It's like, well, I could get a job, but it might be like a crappy job. And I don't know if I want to leave. The job I got isn't great, but it ain't crap. And so that I think is kind of how this thing ends. But what is the thing that will kind of get that first, will be the first domino to fall you know, that's anybody's guess. But my guess is I think the wages will increase, benefits will increase a bit, and you'll see people start to jump back into the labor market, take some of the best jobs, and then that'll cool the market a bit. That's my guess. So that ends up right. Great renegotiation. You heard it here first. I want to be famous. (laughs) So I think that's kind of the the issue there. The, The one that you're talking about virtual work, this one is fascinating to me. And as you can imagine, like in the last year and a half, I've talked to so many executives, companies about this. But to your point specifically about how much better it is to be home, right? <laughs> Especially when you're underrepresented, you're BIPOC and, and you're like, oh, it's kind of nice. It's true. But there is a real, and this was always my concern with virtual oh. was that for better or for worse, the decision makers in most companies are still using previous models for promotion, for you know, identifying high worth or high value employees. And a lot of that has to do with FaceTime or at least interaction. And, you know, my my concern is, hey, you can work from home, but you still kind of have to put in all the things you did before, like being on your grind and networking. That still has to happen. That didn't go away. 
right? <laughs> Unless you want to be, you know, kind of siloed into like the, you know, those experts that have no responsibilities, right? Like an IC, like a very specialized Individual IC. Contributor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's, if you're comfortable with that, fine. But if you're like, no, I want to be a director one day, I want to be an SVP one day. Well, you know, <laughs> then all the things you were doing before you still have to do. And if you want to keep that virtual, then it's going to require you to do some things maybe you haven't done before, right? And interact with people in ways that might seem strange or weird. I'll say this last thing and then, you know, stop me from talking. I'm a professor, so I'll just keep talking (laughs) if you let me. Um, Is that I find that, I don't know if it's generational or hierarchical, but the idea that people are coming back is still really tightly held, I found, at the top levels of organizations. They're not super excited about a fully distributed workforce. That, that, that is not appealing. <laughs> Even as much as people are like, I love it, I love it. I was like, so you can either try to say, I'm going to try to change the mind of the CEOs and, and the top managers or recognize at some point I'm going to have to fit the mold of what they're looking for, right? Yeah. Uh, or I'm going to have to leave and go to a place that is truly distributed where you can be the CEO and never go step foot into an office. But those organizations are not as 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 prevalent as you might think. So yeah. that's like my last piece. I, I wish I had more tangible advice, but it is, <laughs> in short, the game has not changed. The game ain't changed. So <laughs> you can be home yeah. and you can be remote. That's great. If that's better for your family, if that's better for your well-being, awesome. But if you still are ambitious and you still want to be uh, CMO, you still want to be CFO, you will have to figure out how to do the job of managing people remotely. And I can tell you just from teaching some of this stuff is it's very, it's just as difficult as, as, as doing it in person. I probably say it's harder. So I would agree. It's probably harder too. Yeah. I mean, that's some real talk. Like, I think people need to hear that. I need to hear that. We all do. It's like a good reminder of like, yeah, if you want to be in these highly visible roles, they do require a lot of FaceTime and the relationship building, like it doesn't go away. Yeah. We recently started traveling voluntarily. I like to travel every now and then partly because of that. You're able to build such stronger relationships with your team and it makes conflict easier and better, more productive versus what we've been living in the last two years of like just such disconnection, you know? Yep. Um, And, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, an organizational sociologist, right? So, and I claim that. And so people are, we are social by nature, right? And so we need connection. And it doesn't mean we need to go into the office all the time, but it does mean we tend to think more highly of people. We understand people more when we spend time with them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but I don't love spending four hours on a Zoom call. <laughs> but I've been and I've, so I've started traveling too, and gone to like a conference and spent four hours in like a conference with people chatting here and there while things are going on. And it's night and day right now. I feel like we've connected. I remember something that they said, all these things. And that part still has not been uh, replicated digitally. <laughs> and I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I think maybe, you know, my kid's lifetime, maybe they will be virtual reality and it'll be real. But for us, I think it's still going to, it's still going to require getting out there. Yeah. So awesome. Well, I love hearing 
again, the academic viewpoint on those topics because everyone talks about it all the time. But yeah, this has been such a great conversation. Is there anything else that you want to share that you would want to share with my audience? Don't be overwhelmed by the world is a dumpster fire and I need to change everything. You can't change everything, but you can change like two or three things. That's a lot. And so, (laughs) you know, any kind of career pivot that you're thinking about, just think about what is the thing that I want to do? Whatever I do, I'm going to work my tail off. I'm going to work my ass off. But I want to do it doing something I care about. And that's probably the best advice I could give. And I think it is the biggest determinant of how happy you will be mm-hmm. in the future is by making decisions for the, re- the right reasons. So purpose and connections and relationships versus just money or locations or status. Love that. I almost feel like part of your message is like, choose your hard because it's going to be hard regardless, no matter what we go through for, especially for ambitious people. And so you might as well choose a hard that leads you to a, a place where you can feel happy, motivated, excited, or fulfilled. Exactly. I, I love that. Cause that's exactly right. Like I know whatever I do, every job has a part of it that you hate. I don't care what your job is. There's some part of your job that like, this sucks. For me, it's grading. I hate grading. But, you know, the benefits of the job should make you happy, should make you smile, should make you laugh. Uh, You should enjoy your work. And if you're not enjoying your work, you know, that's a good reason to maybe download all of your podcasts and figure out, you know, what path you need to, to pursue to truly be happy and be fulfilled. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Hey, are you thinking about changing careers? Then you need to head over to my website, ecmpodcast.com and sign up to get your free 20-page guide that I wrote with you in mind. I wrote this guide to help you change careers and get really clear on what it is that you want to do next. Career clarity is key to a career transition journey. All right, can't wait to hear what you think about it. Have a great week.